Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18. I entitle it, Paul Defends His Apostleship. In chapter 8, our context is this, Paul lectured the Corinthians on how they needed to look out for the weaker brothers and not cause them to stumble by exercising their rights which they had. And he's going to give a great example of that in this chapter. He had the right as an apostle to receive support, but he didn't exercise that right to keep people from stumbling because people would think that he's getting his living off the gospel. With that context behind us, let's go to 1 Corinthians 9.1. Paul says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Now those four rhetorical questions, of course, are meant to be answered with a yes, and they are designed to buttress his claims that he is a legitimate apostle. Remember, there were apostles in Corinth who were opposing his apostleship. Now, Paul was attacked by his opponents in Corinth in four ways to show he could not be an apostle. The first claim they said is, Paul, you haven't seen Jesus, and an apostle needs to see Jesus. You haven't seen him, so you're not an apostle. The second thing they accused him of was that he was wandering in unmarried solitude and not enjoying a normal life as other apostles did. The third thing they charged him with is, Hey, Paul, you've got to work for your support. What kind of apostle has to work with his hands? And the fourth thing that they urged against Paul's authority as an apostle is that Paul did not urge Corinthians for support, financial support, because Paul knew he was unworthy of that support, his critics claimed. He can't ask for money because he's not an apostle, they said. So Paul is going to defend himself against these four charges. Now, Paul's authorship Apostleship is not only questioned in Corinth, it was questioned in Galatia. Let's look in 2 Corinthians to see how what the false apostles are saying about Paul in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 12. I've become a fool. You forced it on me. A fool because he has to boast about himself being an apostle. Normally Paul didn't like to boast about being an apostle. I should have been endorsed by you since I'm not in any way inferior to the quote-unquote super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with great Endurance among you, not only signs, but also wonders and miracles. So Paul he there appeals to miracles, his ability to work miracles as a support for his apostleship. And in Galatians, he was accused also by the legalist. And Paul starts out his letter to the Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man. And he goes on to say, look, I didn't see anybody in Jerusalem except for the three pillar apostles. But other than that, I didn't see anybody. I just had a vision from Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul is defending his apostleship to the Galatians. Now, how does he defend his apostleship? First of all, he says, am I not free? Now, what he means by that is, probably, he is free to enjoy enjoy all the prerogatives of apostles. Alfred Barnes gives three examples. Paul has the right to abstain from labor. He has the right to, he is free from the obligation of labor. He is free from the enjoyment of a wife, and he's free from enjoying the right of financial support. Whether he's married or not, whether he takes money or not, he's free from all that. It doesn't matter whether he works or not, works on the side as a tent maker. That's irrelevant. He's free from all that. The next thing Paul says, have I not seen the Lord? Now, obviously, Paul had not seen Jesus during his earthly life. He never saw the Lord in the flesh. But he saw him in visions, for example, on the road to Damascus when he fell on the Lord, fell on the ground when he saw the bright light. And he says, who are you, Lord? I am. And Jesus replied, I am Jesus. He repeats that story in Acts 22 and in Acts 26, Acts 26 before King Agrippa. 
Now, Jesus appeared to Paul other times than on that famous occasion on the road to Damascus. As John Gill says, our apostle saw him several times, first at the time of his conversion, that's Acts 9, next when in a trance at Jerusalem, that's in Acts 22:17 through 18, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem. That was when Paul had returned to Jerusalem after his conversion, as related in the first chapter of Galatians. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Abnormally born means he came, he was late. He was late being born. He was late getting his vision of Jesus. But he did see Jesus. So the other apostles can't accuse him and say, well, you just, you're no good as an apostle because you didn't walk around with the Lord like Cephas did, like Peter did, and like the other apostles did. He then says, have I not... Uh, then he says, are you not my work in the Lord? Now, if you, in my opinion, that's the best evidence that he's an apostle is right there. The Corinthians themselves are evidence that he's an apostle. And the Corinthians, Corinthians could see that evidence because they were living and operating in the church that Paul himself had started. Now I'm going to take up a little theological question here. Is it, is it a requirement to see Jesus in order to be an apostle. The reason this comes up is because cessationists love to say, since nobody can see Jesus anymore, therefore we don't have apostles. We just got missionaries, but we don't have apostles. And the reason they do that is because they're scared to death. Somebody's going to claim to be an apostle and write another book of the, of the Bible to add it to the canon. Well, a lot of people claim this as long arguments for the verses. I've just read such an article, but the, ver the verses claiming that, that you have to see Jesus in order to be apostles an apostle, or mere implications. They're not openly stated. Well, I'm going to take an opposing view to that. I don't believe that Paul is listing requirements to be an apostle. When Paul says, I'm free, I have the right to take a wife, and I'm free, I have the right to non-support, what happens if he's in jail? When he's in jail in Corinth, in Caesarea, and in Rome, well, he wasn't free to enjoy a wife in jail. He wasn't free to enjoy the right of financial support. So does that mean he can't be an apostle? Well, you could argue against that and say, well, he had the abstract right, even though it was practically, it was impractical for him to enforce it at that time. So that's not a slam dunk argument. However, there are other arguments that are much stronger that says that, no, you don't have to see the Lord to be an apostle, and I'll just tell you why. How about these several gentlemen in the New Testament who are called New Testament who are called apostles, but they never saw the Lord. Barnabas never saw the Lord, but he's an apostle. Acts fourteen fourteen. But when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard of it, there Barnabas is called an apostle, just like Paul is called an apostle. Barnabas never saw the the Lord that we know of. Did he have a vision? Well, it wasn't recorded. You can argue from silence that he saw one, but you know how that, how weak that argument is. This happened at Lystra when Paul and Barnabas. Were, Barnabas were proclaimed to be gods. That's when they tore their garments. The apostles, Paul and Barnabas, tore their garments. How about James the Just, the Lord's brother, Galatians 1.9? But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. So that James the Lord's brother is directly called an apostle in Galatians 1.9. How about Timothy and Silas? 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul in the salutation of the letter says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And then he drops down in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. Well, who's the we referring to? To the three people in the salutation, Paul, Simon, Silas, and Timothy. First Thessalonians 2, 6. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle. So there, the scripture 
directly says that Timothy, as well as Silas, were apostles. They never saw the Lord, either. Now, James the Just did. He was the Lord's brother, so he did see the Lord in his earthly ministry in the flesh. But the other three, Barnabas, Silas, and Timothy, they never saw Jesus in the flesh, and they never had visions that we know of. Let's go back to this concern of the cessationists that the, the authority of Scripture has to be protected this way. We have to say, no, only people who saw the Lord can write Scripture, because only apostles can write Scripture. Well, how about Luke? He wrote scriptures. When did he ever see the Lord? He wrote the book of Luke. How about Mark? Did he ever see the Lord? Not that I know of. He got all his information from Peter, who did see the Lord, but he personally didn't see the Lord. Here's another argument of saying that requiring apostles to, to see the Lord protects the integrity of scripture. It's not true, because some non-scriptural writers today can easily claim they've seen a vision of Jesus, and lots of people do claim it, but I've... and. I have never seen any of them claim to be an apostle who could write scripture, not even close. And I'm assuming that these people are legitimate to claim they have a vision of Jesus. I'm not a cessationist. I'm not going to deny that somebody had a vision of Jesus. But if they start, start saying, well, I'm now going to write a book of the Bible, I'm going to have a, a mini heart attack. But you never see that. I mean, today, people claim they have visions, then they start churches, and then some of them work miracles. And miracles in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 are said to be the signs of an apostle. The signs of an apostle were performed with great enthusiasm among you. So you see all those people do that, but they don't claim to write scripture. So it's just a tempest in a teapot, people worrying about apostles writing new books in the canon. And so therefore we've got to say that there can't be any apostles today, and therefore we have to require a requirement that apostles see the Lord. That's not what Paul was doing. Just because he saw the Lord, he says, yeah, this is proof that, I, that I'm an apostle. But that's not the same thing as saying that I expect you to see the Lord in order for are you going to be an apostle. The ultimate problem of the closing of the canon needs to be solved in another way than by claiming that apostles have to see the Lord. And therefore, they can't write scripture. The best way to, to solve that problem is to say, look, if any scripture is written, it's got to be accepted as scripture by the whole church. Like, for example, the consensus of the early church, and that hasn't happened. Again, that's problematical, too, because, you know, the Catholics, they have a different canon than the Protestants and so forth. I think the Orthodox have a different one, too. So it's a big problem. But by saying that apostles have to see the Lord, that is not the way to solve it. We could go the other way, too. There are lots of people who did see Jesus. Pontius Pilate saw Jesus. Herod Antipas saw Jesus. Lots of people saw Jesus who were obviously not qualified to be an apostle and therefore unqualified to write scripture. John Gill says that seeing the Lord means seeing the Lord by faith. Well, that would qualify everybody to be an apostle, would it not? So you see, this this is just not going to do to require that as an apostle. Just look at it simply is that Paul is saying, look, I saw the Lord, so don't start complaining to me that I haven't seen the Lord. You are saying, in fact, this is what Paul's opponents were doing. They were saying it's a requirement of, to be an apostle that you have to see the Lord. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. Besides, I have seen the Lord. Well, he, he didn't say, I know it's not a requirement. He could have, I suspect. He doesn't say so. But he does say, I have seen the Lord, but not in the same way that these other apostles have. Now, let me quote you a verse that people, cessationists especially, like to quote to say, see there, we have to see the Lord to be an apostle. This is in Acts 1, 21 through 22, when the early church was trying to find substitutes for Matthias, for Judas Iscariot, and they found Matthias by lot. Verse 21, therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us, 
This is in Acts 1, verse 21. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so... These cessationists say, well, see there, if you're going to be an apostle, you've got to see the Lord, because when they chose an apostle to replace Judas, it was somebody who had been in, who knew Jesus from the beginning, from John the Baptist on. To which I say, okay, well, if you're going to require that as a requirement, let's require all of it. Did Paul accompany the other apostles during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out? No, he did not. Beginning from the baptism of John to the, to the resurrection? Excuse me, until the ascension? Did Paul accompany Jesus during all that time? No, he did not. So that means he would not have been qualified if he had been there in the upper room when they chose a replacement for Judas Iscariot. So if you're going to say that that verse proves that you have to see the Lord, you've got to, say the whole, you've got to use the whole verse, not just part of it and say you've got to see the Lord. You've got to say the whole verse. You've got to accompany him during his whole time. All right, that's enough of that. Let's go on to... Verse 2, 1 Corinthians 9, 2, If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, what does he mean if I'm not an apostle to others? Now, Adam Clark says that what Paul means here is that Paul didn't start other churches, so he wasn't the other church's apostle. If I'm not apostle to others in outer Mongolia, but I am to you, Corinthians, because I didn't start a church in outer Mongolia. That could be what it means. Also, this is my idea. He could say this. Paul was an apostle by gift from the Lord, and the, but others did not recognize him as such. In other words, if I am not an apostle in the eyes of others, if I am not an apostle to the church at Corinth in the eyes of others, at least I am to you in your eyes. I don't know. I think it would go either way on that. But the point is, the main point of this verse is, the Corinthians, you need to recognize that you yourselves, the church that I started, seals it. I'm an apostle because that's what apostles do. They start churches. I started your church. And that's the seal, the stamp of approval. I'm an apostle because you didn't just get started by falling out of the sky. 1 Corinthians 9, 3 through 4. My defense to those who examine me is this. You know, the people who, the so-called super apostles, as in mentioned in 2 Corinthians, the super apostles. My defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Now, Paul is saying it should be obvious to you, and he's going to elaborate on this a little further, that if someone works, he should get paid, and we're working in the gospel, in the gospel vineyard, if you will, and we and we deserve, we have the right to get paid for that. That's obvious. Everybody who works has the right to get paid. And he doesn't say pay at first. He says eat and drink. But what he means is eat and drink at the church's expense. So he's basically talking about support. And we're going to see later on in the chapter here in this audio that Paul is going to say we have the right to eat and drink at the church's expense. And in verse 6, we have the right to refrain from working. And in verse 11, we have the right to reap material things from you. And in verses 13 and 14, just like the people working in the Old Testament temple, we're working in the New Testament temple, the church, and we have the right to earn our livings from you. Paul is probably, in doing this, getting his ideas from Jesus when Jesus said in Luke 10, 7, remain in the same house. This is when Jesus sent out one of his missionary bands. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't be moving from house to house. The worker is worthy of his wages. And again, wages there is metaphorical. It doesn't mean it's a paycheck with deductions and all that. It refers to voluntary contributions. That's a different issue, but that's 
I just wanted to make that clear here. We're not talking about a salary. When Paul says we have the right to eat and drink, he means support. He does not ever say that he has the right to a paid salary. They didn't do that back then. They took contributions. Now, when Paul says, don't we have the right to eat and drink? That's a rhetorical question, expecting the answer. Yes, of course we have the right to eat. But remember, he did not exercise that right, as he says in a later verse, which I don't have in front of me. But he did not exercise the right. We go to 2 Corinthians 12, 13, and 16. We'll see this even clearer. So in what way were you treated worse than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? He did not exercise the right to eat and drink, to get paid for his support. Forgive me this wrong, Paul sarcastically adds. And for those of you who don't believe that the scriptures can be sarcastic, Jesus and Paul were sarcastic. And here's an example. Forgive me this wrong. I will not burden you as I come to you for the third time. I'm not seeking what is yours but you. Okay. 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul continues with, with the rights of an apostle that he has. Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Now, some people say that Paul, by asserting the right to, be travel, to travel around and be married, means that he was married. No, that's an abstract right, probably. He's saying, I have the right. I'm not doing it. I'm not exercising the right, but I do have the right. The reason we tend to think that is because in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, two chapters earlier, Paul says to the Corinthians, I wish that all people were just like me. This is in the midst of a passage in which he is encouraging the Corinthians to not get married in light of the present distress. And so if he says, I want you to be single, I wish that all people were just like me, which means I wish you would be like me, single. So he was probably not married. Why did Paul mention that Cephas had a right to carry a wife? Probably because Cephas was mentioned as one of the leaders of the factions in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas. Well, Cephas was mentioned and says, hey, you like him, right? He's ahead of uh, at least a, a certain portion of you Corinthians love Cephas enough to name him as head of a faction. Well, he has the right to be married. Doesn't I mean, after all, we know that Cephas was married. Remember Mark 1, 30? Simon, that's Cephas, that's Peter. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever. Well, if you have a mother-in-law, that means you got a wife. At least you had a wife. Was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. John Gill's got a pert comment here. He says, quote, It is with a very ill grace that the Pope, who pretends to be Peter's successor, should forbid the marriage of ecclesiastical persons. Really? Paul says ecclesiastical persons, i.e. apostles, they've got a right to be married. I don't know how the Catholics handle that. Well, actually, I do have... I do know how they handle it. It's, it's sort of ridiculous in my idea. This is how they read this. If you look at the KGV, you can see this. Or do we not have the right to lead about a sister, a wife? In other words, do we not have a right to lead about a sister who is a wife? And in other words, a wife to somebody else, but not a, a wife to the apostle? That is absurd. John Gill says that what they're trying to say is this refers to rich Christian sisters who traveled around the, with the apostles supporting them, even though they were married to other men. John Gill points out that a sister, a wife, was a Hebrewism, which meant basically a wife. You know, the Hebrews love to repeat things. Clark says that if you allowed women to go around with the apostles who were married to other men, this would be occasion for scandal. I'm not sure that's so, because if you look in the New Testament, a lot of married women went around with the apostles, and Jesus didn't complain about it. No scandal was ever raised about it. People like Susanna. So I won't. I don't think that's a good argument, Adam. But I do think it's ridiculous to say that the apostles didn't have the right to carry a wife with him. Not a sister who was a wife to somebody else, but to carry a wife of their own. 
Now, who has the right to carry a wife around? The apostles do, the Lord's brothers. That, of course, would include James the Just. It's probably the siblings of the Lord. Now, sometimes it can be cousins. The word is ambiguous. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that's what it means because cousins were termed by the Jews brethren. It's a minor point here. It doesn't really matter. I know the Chinese always did that. They always confused cousins and brothers. Oh, I've got five brothers. I thought you had the one world, well, one child to policy. You couldn't have five brothers. Oh, I'm so sorry. I meant the sons of my aunt. What's that word? I said cousins. Oh, yes, cousins. They don't like that word, cousins. But at any rate, apparently the same thing was in Hebrew, too. All right, so Paul establishes in verse 5 that he's got a right to have a Christian wife. He goes to verse 6. Or do Barnabas and I alone have no right to refrain from working? So he goes from having the right to carry a wife to the right to not work. That's a great Oh, that's a great right. And what he means by working, he doesn't mean working in the church. He means working as a tent maker or working on the side to make some money to support himself. And he's saying that, are you trying to say that just Barnabas and I have to work? To have no right to refrain from working is the same way of saying more simply, do you mean that I have to work, but all the other apostles don't have to work? I don't know why he mentions Barnabas. They must have accused Barnabas of the same thing they were accusing Paul of. This is what Albert Barnes, or Alfred Barnes, excuse me, what he says is the reason that Paul mentions Barnabas here. Quote, Barnabas's early association with St. Paul, it's on the first journey, probably led him to adopt the apostles' practice of supporting himself and not being dependent on his fellow Christians. And so the word got out and the Corinthians said, well, Paul is working to support himself and Barnabas is working to support himself. Yeah, we're working with our hands, making tents, but are you saying we don't have the right to refrain from working? We don't have the right to refrain from working and get support, even though all the other apostles have the right to refrain from working and get support from Christians? Now, this little word alone gives us some more information about the practice of the other apostles. Apparently, only Barnabas and Paul were the ones who were working to support themselves. Apparently, all the other apostles in Paul's knowledge were not working on the side, but were taking money from the church from the churches. Now, we need to remember one thing, is that Paul gave up this right. He's asserting the right very strongly. He has the right to support, but he gave it up. 1 Corinthians 9, 12. However, second part of the verse, however, we have not made use of this right, he says. And once again, we need to remember that by not making use of the right, he is referring to an example of himself, a personal example of how he did not exercise a right that he had that he had in order not to make his weaker brother stumble, which was the theme of the last chapter. We go to verses 7 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 9. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit, or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned with oxen? All right, basically, Paul is saying here is that if you work, you're going to get paid. He gives some homely examples. Soldiers going to war, they got to get paid. It's really interesting when you read ancient history. One of the big problems the kings had back then was paying the soldiers. They'd, they'd work for a while with their paying arrears, but after a while, they'd say, oh, no, we're not going to do this anymore, and they just quit. So uh, great generals always had to worry about paying their soldiers. Who plants a vineyard does not eat its fruit? Of course, nobody does that. Who shepherds a flock doesn't drink the milk from the flock? Well, nobody does that. So he's saying, look, if I'm working in the in the vineyard of God, if you will, I'm not going to get paid. If I 
I'm not going to get financial support. Now, he says, I'm saying this, am I saying this from a human perspective? And, of course, he just did. He used human examples of people that get paid. But now he goes to the divine perspective. Doesn't the law also say the same thing? So now, and that implies, by the way, that the law is divine as opposed to being human. And he quotes the verse in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's in Deuteronomy 25.4. Moses says this, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. A direct quote. Now, what that means is, is your ox is pulling the millstone around and around the circle, and the grain and the husk of the wheat get crunched between the two millstones, and now comes that nice grain, and you put the muzzle on the ox so he can't, so he can't eat that grain so you can get more grain for yourself. Well, that's just plain stupid. It's also not very kind to the ox. So I'm not sure that the law was trying to be, show concern for ox, and it could have been show, showing that it's just not wise to do that because then your ox gets weak because he doesn't eat, and so he doesn't do a good a job as he would otherwise. But basically the idea is you got to, somebody works, you ought to get paid for. If an oxen works, it ought to get paid. It ought to get paid for its work. And then he says, is God really concerned with oxen? That does not mean God's not concerned with oxen. Of course, God loves animals. He made them. But if he is concerned with oxen, how much more shall he be concerned or should he be concerned with men? The fact that he's concerned with oxen shows a fortiori that he is concerned with men. He's more concerned with men. He's more concerned with humans, including those apostles who are working in the kingdom. So Paul says, you owe the right of support to apostles. 1 Corinthians 9, 10 through 11. Or isn't he really saying it for us? In other words, the, the law of Moses about muzzling the ox. Isn't he really saying that for us believers? Yes, it is written for us because he who plows ought to plow in hope. And who threshes should do so in hope of sharing the crop. So if an ox wants to share in the in the grain crop as he muzzles as he treads out the grain, how much more should the farmer who plants the grain he expects to eat it? This is just human nature. Nothing worse than not meeting payroll, folks. So Paul concludes in verse 11. If we we have sown spiritual things for you, and Paul had, he started the church. If you recall, he's writing them letters. He wrote this this letter plus a previous lost letter, and he's 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 going to send messengers to the church at Corinth. He's taking care of this church. So he's sown spiritual things for you. Is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? And the answer is, no, it's not too much if we reap material things from you. You need to to provide us with things such as food, lodging, and money. Paul also says this to the Galatians, Galatians 6, 6. The one who is taught the message must share all his good things with the teacher. Romans 15:27. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to Jews in material needs. So Paul is not super spiritual. He says, look, teachers have got to get paid. you got to support them. And when I say paid, I don't mean a salary. I mean they need to be donated to, if I can put it that way. 1 Corinthians 9:12. If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? However, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, who are these others that have the right to benefits, financial benefits? There were two groups that the Corinthians were supporting, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. The first group is the false apostles, and the second group are the true apostles. <laughs> so Paul, being of the true apostles, he says, look, if others, the false apostles, the super apostles, as, as they're called, as Paul sarcastically calls them in 2 Corinthians, if they have the right to receive benefits, hey, don't we even more? Remember, Paul started the church. Not only did he start the church, but in 2 Corinthians 11:23, he lists some of the services he's done for the church. 
referring to the super apostles, he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. A madman because he has to boast about he's a better apostle than his opponents. I'm a better one, a better apostle with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. I mean, Paul could back up his claim with his life. And remember, he started the church, so he has a right more than anybody. If others have the right, certainly he does. And, of course, he says, however, we have not made use of the right. Instead, we endure everything. In other words, endure having to work, making a nasty job, tent-making, horrible job. He's enduring poverty so that he will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Why would he hinder the gospel of Christ? Because if he took money from the Corinthians, the false apostles, the super apostles would say, look at there, he's getting rich off of you, getting rich off the gospel. He's an Elmer Gantry. He's a fraud. 1 Corinthians 9.13, don't you know that those who perform the temple service eat the food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? Now, it's not clear here whether Paul's making a distinction between two groups of people. Those who perform the temple services, that sounds like the Levites who are doing service in the temple, such as singing, police work, guard work, cleaning up, managing the utensils in the temple, and all the mundane things that Levites did. And then those who serve at the altar, that would be the, the priest who took the animals to the altar and slaughtered the animal and put it on the altar, Levites and priests. Well, if that's the case, and, and if Paul is referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system, and I think he was, then Paul covers the Levites and the priest. Now, if Paul is indeed referring to the Levites when he refers to those who perform the temple services eating food, that would not mean meat from the offerings because... The Levites were not allowed to eat the sacrificed animals or portions thereof. But Adam Clark says that they were allowed to eat the first fruits that were offered and free will offerings to the temple, which were not involved in sacrifices. And I assume he's right on that. So if, if that's what Paul means, then that means the, the Levites eat that kind of food, first fruits, and then those who serve at the altar of the priest would eat meat. And that's well known as far as the priest eating meat. Let me just read from Leviticus 7, 6. Any male among the priests may eat it, eat the sacrifice. It is to be eaten in a holy place and is especially holy. And there's some other verses. I'm not going to read you the breast and the right thigh and all that stuff that's offered to the priest. This is in Leviticus chapter 7. Now, it could be that when Paul is referring here, don't you know that those who perform the temple services, he's talking about pagan temple services. Remember in, cha in the previous chapter, he was talking about food sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. And so going back to that context, that might be what Paul meant here. In fact, my NIV study Bible says that it's both that Paul is referring both to Old Testament Levitical priest and pagan priest. But anyway, whatever he was referring to, the point is clear. A priest gets to eat. And Paul is saying, I'm analogous to a priest. I'm serving the people just like those priests serve the people. And therefore, I have the right to eat. We go now to verse 14, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul continues, In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. When did the Lord command that? Well, in Matthew 10.10, 10, he's sending out one of his apostolic bands. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a traveling stick, for the worker is worthy of his food. So this idea that a worker is worthy of his food did not come straight from Paul. He he could just read the Gospels if he had them at that time, and I assume he did. Luke 10:7, Jesus says this, remain in the same house. Again, he's sending out an apostolic band. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer for the worker is worthy of his wages. And remember, wages is metaphorical. 
If you take it literally, then you got to take the thing about muzzling out the green as literal too, and ox is literal. That's not the point. The point is you're worthy of getting support, food. Don't be moving from house to house. Verse 15, 1 Corinthians 9, But I have used none of these rights, and I have not written this to make it happen that way for me. For it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. I have used none of these rights. That means he's not taking any food, shelter, or money from the Corinthians. And by the way, Corinthians, Paul says, I'm not writing this to get you to change your ways and start supporting me. I'm not going to expect any money from you. And I, he doesn't say this, but I suspect he means I'm not going to take it if you offer it to me. Because, he said, it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boasting. If I took money from you, I couldn't boast anymore that I'm working for you for free, for pay. And I'd rather die than that have, have that happen, so I'm not going to take any money from you. Note how strongly Paul cared to keep appearances good. I'm ready to die. Compare that to, please send your money in because we don't have our quota this month and the TV station is going to cut our show off. You know, beg, beg, beg for money on TV. I, you, I, I don't know. It doesn't sound to me that's the way Paul did it. Because when you do that, you automatically open yourself up to a charge that you are preaching the gospel for money. And Paul wanted to keep appearances clean. It seems to me the church would have been a lot better off during these last 20 years if we had paid more attention to this and not been involved in so much financial scandal. He says it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. What boast? The boast that he was preaching the gospel for free. He's proud of that. He's boasting about it. I'm preaching the gospel for free. Now, of course, he had to boast because he was challenged by these super apostles. He normally wouldn't go around boasting, I'm preaching the gospel for free. So look at how spiritual I am. He, of course, he's not doing that. When Paul says, I'm not writing to get you to give me money, <laughs> I'm not writing for me to actualize my abstract right to get support from you. I'm not writing for that. What was he writing for? Well, he could have been writing to quit them being so haughty about exercising their rights to eat idle meat. He said, look, you guys have knowledge you have the right to eat eat idle meat i have the right to support but let's how about let's forego our rights if it's going to cause a hindrance to the gospel he could have been writing to show that his refusing support did not cut against his apostolic authority that's another reason he was writing he's saying just because i didn't exercise the right to take money that doesn't mean i don't think i'm worthy of being an apostle like these false apostles accusing me of now, when he says, I've used none of these rights, of course, I've been talking about financial rights, but it also could be the right to be married, too, because he was currently single. Jameson Fawcett Brown point that out. But I think the main thing he's talking about is money. We go to verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because an obligation is placed on me, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, these next couple of verses are difficult to interpret. I'm going to give it a try here. He's He's contrasting two situations. He said, I can preach the gospel for free as a voluntary thing and do it like a labor of love. I don't expect any pay for it. I'm just doing it because I like doing it. Or I can do it because I'm under obligation because I'm taking pay for it and I have to do it. For, to take a modern analogy, let's say that you're working at a state welfare agency and you are going out to help poor people and you have to show up at work at 9 and you leave at 5 and you have to do certain things, file certain reports in order to get your salary. Well, you're working on the obligation. Are you really doing it because you love the people that you're trying to help? But on the other hand, if you're working at a Christian soup kitchen somewhere and you're taking care of poor people and, you, and you're passing out food, or if you're working in, in a disaster area and you're doing it for free, you're taking your time off and donating your money and you're doing it for free, 
Well, then you're doing it not under compulsion, but voluntarily. All right, so those are the two situations. You're doing it for free or you're doing it for pay. He says if, in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because an obligation is placed on me. Placed on me. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So what he's saying is, is there's two ways to look at this. Under one scenario, I'm preaching the gospel because God's making me do it because I can't help but do it. I got to do it. I get up in the morning just like I got to go to work. The worker says, I've got to go to to the office. Paul says, I got to get up and preach the gospel. I got to get up and go to my office. I have to. Now, if you're doing something voluntarily, you don't have to do a thing. You can get up and go and not go. That's up to you. But boy, if if you're getting paid for it, you got to go, all right? So he's saying that, in a sense, he is obligated to preach the gospel because he's like it's a job. He's, he's compelled to preach, as the NIV puts it. This attitude is wonderful, of course, how much he wanted to spread the gospel. Here's a relevant quotation from Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name, his message becomes a fire burning in my heart. Shut up in my bones. I become tired of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. So Paul is saying... Well, I could go. I could say that I, I can boast about preaching the gospel for free, and that makes me a real spiritual person, a real good guy, but not really, because Jesus is making me do it because I want to serve him so bad. So don't. I'm not really boasting about that. And he says I have no reason to boast because Jesus is making me do it because I want to do it so bad. As John Gill and Adam Clark say, the fact that he was preaching the gospel, he has no reason to boast that he was preaching the gospel because pay, whether he's paid for it or whether he's not paid up for it, is not thought of. That's not, his, that's not what he's interested in. So whether I get money from you Corinthians or not, it's irrelevant. doesn't matter. I'm under obligation. I'm not under obligation to you because you're giving me money. I'm under obligation to God because he wants me to preach the gospel. So if I do it voluntarily to preach the gospel, I don't have any reason to boast. Because woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. It goes to verse 17. It says, for if I do this willingly... In other words, for free, as voluntarily. If I do this voluntarily, in other words, I have a reward. And, of course, what is the reward? Verse 18, it says, What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not make full use of my authority in the gospel. In other words, I'm doing this voluntarily. I'm not taking money from you. I'm not under any obligation to you. I'm not taking money that might be looked at as a wage. I'm doing this free because I love the Lord. I'm under obligation to God, to Jesus, not to you. My reward is I'm able to preach the gospel for free. I mean, look at Paul's attitude. He thought it was a great situation to be in, not to be receiving money from the people he's ministering to. How many of us today have that attitude? Now, then he says, I have a reward if I'm doing this voluntarily, but if I do it unwillingly because God is forcing me to do it. In other words, look at it from two different ways. I'm doing this from my point of view voluntarily because I want to do it. But on the other hand, you could look at it as saying that Jesus is forcing me to do it because I've got to do it because I want to serve him so bad. Well, if that's, if you want to look at it that way, then I'm entrusted with a stewardship. I'm going to do a good job. He's my boss. I'm going to do a darn good job. I have a stewardship. Well, that's difficult two verses to interpret. That's the best I can do. I think that's what Paul is getting at. It doesn't really matter which way you look at it, whether he's doing it voluntarily or whether he's taking money. It doesn't make any difference. Because even if he's not taking money, he is still under obligation. If he's taking money for support, he would be under obligation to the people who give him the money, of course. But he's also under obligation to God. So if he doesn't take money from Corinthians, he's under obligation to Jesus. So he still has a stewardship to do a good job. On the other hand, if you want to look at it as, hey, I'm not taking money from you. I'm doing this voluntarily. Well, hey, I've got my reward. I don't have any pay for it. 
But I got my reward that I'm free. I'm free to preach the gospel the way I want to without having causing a hindrance to the gospel. I'm able to preach the gospel in a way such that the gospel spreads faster than it otherwise would. Ladies and gentlemen, with that difficult two verses, we are now finished with 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18. We will take this up in our next audio in which I will cover 1 Corinthians 9, verses 18 through 27 and finish up the chapter. Paul talks about becoming all things to all men, both to Jew and to Greek in order that the gospel might spread. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.